Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. Welcome all to the 2021 annual Reichshauer Lecture here at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University, co-sponsored by the Korea Institute, the Reichshauer Institute of Japanese Studies, and the Harvard University Asia Center. The title of this year's lecture is New Eras, Old Stories, from May 4th and Meiji to the 21st Century New Era. Defining New East Asia in the Age of Novelty, Emotion, and Purpose. I am Winnie Yip, and I am the Acting Faculty Director at the Fairbank Center this year. I'm very pleased to welcome you all, albeit via this remote format. As a specialist in health, I'm pleased to see the world beginning to recover from the toils of COVID-19. And I'm certain that by next year, the Reichshauer Lecture will be delivered in person in the CGIS self-building here in Cambridge. One benefit of meeting in this current format, however, is that we are able to welcome those of you in our audience who would not normally be able to attend in person. Those of you watching live from China, Asia, other parts of the United States, and indeed from across the world. Today's lecture is the first of three in a series held annually in honor of Professor Edwin Reischauer, who was University Professor Emeritus at Harvard, as well as the former US Ambassador to Japan. This lecture series was founded in 1985 by Professor John King Fairbank to celebrate Professor Reischauer's extraordinary life and contribution to the study of East Asia. The three lectures were designed as a challenge for a single senior author, to, a scholar, to cover the breadth of East Asia, a challenge that spans geographies, times, and disciplines. Since the inaugural lecture delivered by the late William Theodore Weberry, numerous leading scholars have taken on this intellectual challenge, including Timothy Brooke, Nancy Steinhardt, the late Ezra Vogel, and of course, our today's moderator, Professor Arnie Westbeck. This year, we're very honored to invite Rana Mitter to join this list of esteemed speakers. Rana is Professor of History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford, a recipient of the Order of the British Empire and a Fellow of the British Academy, and also a colleague of mine when I was at Oxford. He received both his master and doctoral degrees from the University of Oxford and was a Kennedy Scholar here at Harvard. His research focuses on the emergence of nationalism in modern China and China's war with Japan, topics that are evident in his most recent book, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Rana embodies the epitome of a jinzi, a scholarly gentleman whose prolific research expertly draws on history to inform the present. He masterfully crafts narratives about China to better inform not only academic readers, but also public audiences. And he's a regular contributor to journalism and broadcasting. We're honored to invite him here today to give the first of his three Reichshauer lectures. We're equally honored to be joined by our moderator, Professor Arnie Westad, who um, 
has uh, who is a professor of um, who is Elihu Professor of History and Global Affairs at Yale University, where he is a scholar of modern international and global history. Until recently, he was the S.T. Lee Professor of U.S.-Asia Relation at Harvard, and we're pleased to welcome him back to the Fairbank Center. He's the author of multiple field-defining works on East Asia and the Cold War. His most recent book is Empire and Righteous Nation, 600 Years of China-Korea Relations, which I'm thrilled to say that it was published as a result of him giving the Reichshauer Lecture on the topic back in 2017. So welcome back, Anna. Now, before I turn over to Rana um, for the audience, if you have questions, please type it into the Q&A box. And at the end, after Rana gave the lecture and after Ani had um, uh, provided his commentary and a discussion with Rana, we will definitely leave enough time for Q&A to address your questions. So without further ado, um, let me turn over to Rana. So thank you, Rana. Thank you very much indeed, Winnie. And thank you everyone who's joined us today, whatever time zone you're in for the Reichshauer Lectures. Before I start, could I very first of all say that I'm very sorry not to be able to join all of you in person, although I'm glad we can have this internationalized version of the, of the lectures. I'm aware this is the 35th year that the Reichshauer Lectures have been offered, uh, starting in 1986 with the legendary uh, Professor um, de Barry, as, uh, as Winnie pointed out. I'm also immensely sorry that this is, I think, the first year that they will not be attended by Ezra Vogel, a very old friend and mentor to many people here, me included, but by no means just me. And it's uh, with great sadness that uh, uh, we mark his passing and uh, uh, his, uh, uh, his, his, uh, his death. But we also note, of course, that um, he's shaped over decades the lives of so many at Harvard and well beyond as well. I'd also like to thank uh, Professor Winnie Yip for the invitation here today. Uh, and I have to say she's much missed at Oxford, although we are immensely proud and pleased that she's gone on to such wonderful things at Harvard. And thank you to the team at the Fairbank Center, Mark Grady, James Evans, Dan Murphy, Marion Lee, and others who I may have left out, but not through any intention, I hasten to add. And finally, at this point, I'd say many thanks indeed to another old friend, Professor Arne Vestad, who has kindly agreed not only to uh, sit through the lecture, but actually comment on it afterwards. And I'm immensely grateful for that input uh, as well. Work as though you live in the early days of a better nation. These words are most associated with the Scottish author, Alastair Gray, although when he was asked about them, he was at pains to point out he actually took them from uh, a long poem by the Canadian poet, Dennis Lee. These lines or this line, work as though you live in the early days of a better nation has been used quite frequently in Britain where I live by Scottish nationalists seeking to encompass a whole variety of factors. One is the idea of newness, of innovation, of novelty, the idea that a political entity, in this particular case, the Scottish nation, is in its, quotes, early days. The second factor is emotions, the emotions that surround the values of that particular political project. The idea expressed in the word better. <coughs> and the third concept is work, 
The idea that a political entity does not come straight into being, despite the entreaties often of nationalist propagandists from all sorts of societies. Instead, the idea that any sort of political entity is in fact a work in progress. And that to make that progress, a sense of ultimate purpose, teleology, if you will, is necessary. Well, as I've mentioned, Scotland and Canada are two countries which have been most associated with this particular line. But the idea that comes from it is something that during these lectures, uh, I want to propose as a way of thinking about the East Asian experiment in modernity and how the concepts inherent in that line work as though you live in the early days of a better nation, the concepts of newness, of emotion and of purpose have come together and refracted over a century or more. Unless it sounds that this is a project based perhaps in you know, warm and cuddly tones, let me be clear. I don't suggest anything necessarily morally positive inherent in any of these terms. Newness does not, I think, in any way invalidate the old. Emotion can be deeply destructive as well as constitutive. And purpose does not necessarily have a moral objective at the end of it. Yet nonetheless, I think this is a good moment to have this reflection. For me, it's prompted by the moment in the West that we find ourselves in with regard, first and foremost, to China. And also the fact, perhaps less noticed in the Western world, but I think very obvious in Asia, that it has shifted the West relationship with Japan. Of course, China has been rising, to use the most uh, frequently heard piece of conventional wisdom, for decades, perhaps just off the edge of the radar screen of those of us who live in the, um, uh, in the Western world. But I think that nonetheless, we can see something qualitatively different about what's happened in the last couple of years. Whether it's the new harshness from the Trump administration regarding how to deal with China, or indeed that of the UK government in recent months, for those of you who follow uh, British politics, the sense that a phrase that I've heard many, many times from business people, media people over the last uh, decade or two, the statement that China is a pragmatic and, and not an ideological power. Well, I think that's morphed from being conventional wisdom to actually being in some ways quite outdated. Or else the sense that China is no longer an aspirant member of a liberal international order, but rather a power keen to refashion the order in some ways from first principles. And I know particularly recently a brilliant piece in International Organization by Jessica Chen Weiss and Jeremy Wallace, which has pointed this out in very sophisticated ways. Clear signs all over that we sit in the middle of something new in a way that what I think have been more inchoate, more hard to define even in the Reichau lectures of just five years ago, let alone 10. And I've mentioned China, because I think it is at the moment China that sits at the center of the particular process that makes this shift clear. And I'll come back at various points during my comments today to speak about that moment in 2017, the formal statement from Xi Jinping of the new era, Xin Shiqi in China with his definition of that turning point and of that new era to the party Congress. In doing so, I'm going to do my best to try and illustrate a few parts of what I want to see. Uh, so let me just try and share my screen with everyone.
let's uh, let's go here. Very good. Okay. Very good. So just a reminder for uh, everyone of uh, Xi Jinping speaking at that uh, rather monumental party congress back in uh, 2017, uh, just three and a half years ago. Now, the new era itself, no one will be surprised to hear, does of course rather strongly coincide with the leadership of Xi Jinping himself. And the phrasing alerts us to a factor that has shaped the lives of people, I think, in different ways all around the world over centuries. The sense at certain moments of living in world historical times, at liminal moments in which everything does become new and doing so at times of unprecedented innovation, whether it is in politics, technology or social convention. In other words, there's nothing new about newness, but each manifestation of it is very distinctive. And I want to try and tease out some of those distinctions today. Now, I want to just say briefly that elsewhere in a recent piece for the Journal of Foreign Affairs, I've given some thoughts on the contemporary significance of this new era. In other words, what I think it means for our politics at the moment and what we miss by looking at just one or two of the factors that shape contemporary China. Uh, that particular piece is about what I've called the DNA model of what today's China is, a combination of four factors which happen to match the initials of the four nucleotide chemicals that make up real DNA, ACGT, which for me stand for authoritarianism, consumerism, globalization and technology. And should you have time and interest, I'd be delighted if you went and uh, had a look at the, uh, the piece. But today, I want to do something slightly different. I want to place the new era in a historical context, which first of all, takes more account of the East Asian comparisons, since that is very much what the Reichshauer series has uh, had at its heart, I think over the 35 years that it's been uh, uh, in existence. But also to point out that I think one cannot fully understand the new era of China today in the 2010s, 2020s, without understanding the importance of Japan as the other in the creation of that East Asian newness, and I will give some examples in just a few moments of what I mean. In other words, in modern East Asia, there has been a longer and I think perhaps more pointed sense of, uh, of, uh, of newness since modernity in the region has been tied to, I think, protean forces that are much more unpredictable than perhaps they have been in some parts of the Western world. What do I mean by that? Well, in North America and Western Europe, the sense of a wider narrative development has been more set in a particular path that, unsurprisingly, is to do with the rise of liberal democracy. And anomalies within that particular development are generally read as being just that, anomalies. In the German context, the idea of the Sonderweg, the special path, the path, in fact, to dictatorship in the early 20th century, is seen by definition as being anomalous, even though, as many historians have demonstrated in practice, authoritarian government has actually been much more mainstream in reality across Europe than genuinely pluralist democracy during much of that period. However, in East Asia, I think it's fair to say that a variety of political and economic narratives have competed with one another, sometimes in succession, sometimes in a dialectic at the same time, but I think more and more perhaps without any real sense of a grand narrative, or certainly 
not a grand narrative that looks like the uh, Western European path to liberal democracy, and certainly much less of a narrative in the year 2020, 2021, as opposed to perhaps 1989 to 91, or indeed even in a different way, as I'll go on to say, 1940. And that's certainly the case uh, today. Europe and North America, despite the rise of populism, do not, I think, see a meaningful combination of innovation and anti-democratic politics. In East Asia, in contrast, the sense that the new and the authoritarian can be coterminous is perhaps stronger than it has been as a sense of direction of travel since the early Cold War. Let's take a central and I think very crucial element of innovation as part of modernity that I think is playing a new and very powerful role in contemporary political discourse, and that is technology. Move this slide on. Yeah. Now, in the mid 20th century, much discussion of the technology of war deba debated the merits of the uh, item on the left hand side, which some of you may recognize as a Mitsubishi Zero fighter aircraft. And there have been many debates during that time about the relative merits of the Messerschmitt 109 BF versus the Mitsubishi Zero. And indeed, such debates have gone on well beyond the confines of World War II itself. I speak as someone who has been confined in the bar at a history conference with a British fighter plane enthusiast, several pints of beer along the way, comparing the climb rate of these two aircraft to me in excruciating detail while I desperately tried to look for the exit. In other words, the importance of Japan's fighter aircraft as a symbol of something much wider, not just to do with the technology itself, but the politics that surrounds it, has been with us for a long time. I'm glad to say that in the, by the 1960s, Japan's much more mercifully peaceful technology was where it showed domination. On the right-hand side, I found, uh, you'll be glad to see a retro picture of a, I think, Sony stereo set from the mid-1980s, which gives some of us who were young in those days a certain amount of, of, of nostalgia. And it reminded me, actually, one of my favorite stories, which I will honestly con confess, I put this in a lecture, I wouldn't put it in a journal article because I couldn't find the reference for it, but it's so good, I have to tell you. Um, I think it dates from the 1980s, when a British manufacturer of stereos was taken to court and sued and had to change the brand name they used because they had used a fake name that sounded Japanese. And the British court ruled that they couldn't do that because it might give a misleading sense of the reliability of the product. In other words, that if people bought it and found it was actually British and not Japanese, then they would demand a refund. Um, in other words, to be Japanese was, seen, was, was to be seen to be innovative, to be new, to be reliable in the 1970s, at least in the world of consumerism. And what more important facet of the Cold War was there than the competition over consumerism, although possibly my very distinguished commentator in his magisterial history of the Cold War might slightly disagree with that. The early 2000s were perhaps also in a way Korea's moment, if we're going to cover the other great East Asian power, Korea's moment to shine in terms of technology. If you're on the warlike northern side of the border, then perhaps it was more the Nodong missiles that might catch your attention. If on the consumerist southern side, Samsung and LG television sets and gaming consoles. But now in the 2020s, we are seeing, I think, a rather different sort of combination of technology, consumerism and modernity, which is blended with an authoritarianism that is very distinctive to China. And here we see, of course, as you'll see, particularly um, Huawei mobile phones and 
other manifestations of the new 5G dominance that is clearly emerging as part of China's rollout of its technology around the world. And you will not need me to tell you about the controversy that this has caused in a whole variety of countries ranging from the Western world to the United States, to India, uh, and well beyond. So if the 1980s were to some extent shaped in the West by American nightmares about Japanese ownership of Rockefeller Plaza, which was a, uh, a big deal at the, at the time, uh, those who were there might remember it, the 2020s are perhaps instead going to be haunted by a Chinese party state that has the tech and the money to put surveillance in every building in New York and beyond. Fantasies of malign artificial intelligence seem to haunt the American dream. Brave new world that has such Wi-Fi in it. And China itself clearly sees the link between technology and political innovation. The link is frequently explicit, as you can see in some of the debates brilliantly commented and translated by David Ownby in his website, Reading the China Dream. And if you haven't read that, it's one of the most important sources of uh, taking the pulse of China's intellectual thinking today, and I, I highly recommend it. So in that, uh, David Ownby has presented the essays by um, philosopher Ren Jianhao on the difficulties of exactly this connection between AI and politics in China today. To cite a brief extract from Ownby's translation of Ren, AI provides certain technological supports that can greatly optimize human control in practical matters of social control in specific areas. And in this regard, the integration of human intelligence and artificial intelligence for the purpose of constructing a well-ordered society is a good solution to problems of higher order social control. You can say that's a good thing. You can say that's a bad thing. But one thing I think you cannot deny is that that is something very new. China's leaders speak today of the new era, just as Japan, I think in some ways is rather urgently trying to shore up elements of the old one. But it's worth remembering that East Asia has seen a range of new eras in the modern age, defined by Japan, by China, and actually sometimes by the outsiders who encountered and interacted with both. So what is it that defines that novelty and how familiar are the elements that actually form part of it? Well, the mid 20th century, I think, saw war, social change, and changing global encounters defined as moments when China and Japan entered a new or special era in a global context. So what continuities and contrasts are there between the past and present, and what defines that newness? And as I reflect on that question, I'm just going to move my seat very slightly, since I'm sure viewers around the world won't believe it, but there's actually sunshine in the UK this afternoon, and it's slightly uh, clouding the uh, ability to uh, to see what's going on, at least on, on, on my screen. So I hope I'm adjusting reasonably effectively there. Let's carry on. A historical perspective, I think, is immensely important because today's China and Japan will one day be the subject of historical inquiry. Think of the debates of the 1980s on Japan, uh, sorry, on Japan as number one, as epitomized by Ezra's classic book and one of the reasons, many reasons I'm so sorry he's not here today. There are still immensely important debates, uh, sorry, they are still immensely important debates, but of course they tell us a very different story today because those debates are now historical evidence, not a narrative about the present day. They tell us about the history of developmental states, they tell us about the nature of Cold War modernity, and they tell us about the different reasons for economistic discourses of growth. Naoki Sakai's 
Naukisak has recent essay on the meaning of the Meiji Restoration, which you can find on the Engelsberg Ideas website if you'd like to, to look it up, I think makes this point really well. And he is writing about the difference between the 100th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration in 1968 and what's happening now. And he writes, this is now uh, Naoki Sakai, not me, just quoting from him. In 1968, there was almost unanimous agreement amongst the Japanese public that the Meiji Restoration denoted the beginning, denoted the beginning of 100 years of exceptional achievement, which had opened up the country to the world and eventually brought modern civilization to the inhabitants of the Japanese archipelago. Moreover, it gave rise to what was applauded by the American proponents of modernization theory as, quotes, the only genuinely modern society in the entirety of Asia. A half century later, the lack of public interest in the Meiji Restoration, the sub subsequent rejuvenation is striking. One wonders why the nation has ceased so drastically to be interested in Japan's modernization. So I'll end Sakai's comment there for a moment. And just to summarize, Sakai actually in this fascinating essay finds the answer in the term, many of you of course will know this term, hikikomori, describing uh, an adult in Japanese culture who turns back and refuses to leave his or her home because the outside world is too frightening. Um, and uh, Sakai refers to the nationalism of hikikomori saying, Again, this is quoting him. By using this phrase, therefore, I designate a social and political, political constellation based upon the fantasy of a nation as an enclosed space of security, almost an equivalent of the enclosed space of a bedroom for the hikikomori people. Adherents of this type of nationalism fear their national space is vulnerable to the intrusion of aliens and so advocate building a metaphorical or physical wall to stop them. Now, I agree with Sakai that fearing that fear of outsiders is part of what's going on in Japan. I'd also point out that Japan is not the only country which recently has been talking about building walls to keep people out, but that's a, a slightly different matter. But I'd also say beyond even that, that think about contemporary China, also a country that I think is fearful of the impact of outsiders, even though it has an immense moment of national confidence overall today in a way that I think is not so true of Japan. So I would add to Sakai's excellent analysis, the idea that there's a wider sense in Japan today of being bypassed by modernity. Many of you will know of the debates, the uh, Kindai no Chokoku debates of the 1940s about overcoming modernity. Being bypassed by modernity is a rather different sort of encounter, I think, in the present day. In other words, as demographic shifts, as geopolitics shifts, the sense that Japan is that new form of Asian modernity that it could argue in 1968, not least backed up by the WW Rostos and the, their successors in this, this world, that has clearly passed. And Japan does not today, I think, speak of itself as being in a new era. China, under Xi Jinping, very much does. But as historians will tell you, because that's what we're here for, there are always premonitions of the future in by looking at the past. And rather unusually, certainly compared to Japan in that earlier era, we can tell you, or at least give you some idea of when China's new era is going to become old. Actually, in some ways it will happen as early as the next decade, the 2030s. Don't forget that in 10 years from now, China's demographic shift will have started for real as 5 million fewer Chinese will be living in China year by year as an inexorable consequence of 
the one child policy and the fact that China is a low immigration society. Um, if Xi Jinping takes a fourth term, I think most of us watching would assume he's likely to take a third. If he takes a fourth term, he'll be coming towards the end of it by 2031. Whether he's gonna seek a fifth will be the question at that point. Climate change issues will also have come to some sort of head by then globally. And that's just a linear projection from where we are today. Of course, we all know by now the linear projections are the least likely ones in the world. Otherwise, uh, Hillary Clinton will be enjoying her second term as president now. And as someone else pointed out to me, if we were doing it from the late 19th century, we would all be talking about Argentina's future as a major economic superpower with uh, you know, Buenos Aires being one of the world's great um, centers of international finance. Although of course it is a wonderful and beautiful place from all accounts. In other words, even if everything goes in a straight line, or if we are lucky enough for it to go in a straight line, that's the other way to put it, this version of a new era is going to last about a decade. The 2020s, in other words, is a key decade for the new era defined by China. And we can say with a certainty that I think was not present for, China, for Japan in the 1980s. It was not present for the uh, Nakasone generation, you might uh, say, that... Um, what was going to happen in the way that the financial and debt crisis of the 80s was not foreseen really, I think, within China, Japan or um, outside. Despite the constant evocations of the age of China, the rise of China, whichever of those phrases you particularly prefer over the past 30 years, I think until recently, very few people in the West, apart from China specialists, and while we love each other, we're a relatively small uh, group. Uh, apart from those, very few in the West have made it a central as opposed to marginal element to the way in which they construct their view of the world. Not least because most Westerners even now don't actually know a great deal about China. They, knew, they actually knew relatively little about post-war Japan either, but in the end that mattered less for the West's um, uh, self-regard. And if you don't believe that, go back to a fantastically outdated, but in some ways rather marvelously uh, prejudiced book, Arthur Custer's book, The Lotus and the Robot from the 1960s, which is a catalog of the most amazing prejudices about Japan that I think I've ever seen written by any, any Westerner, available in the good secondhand bookstores near you when they reopen after the, uh, the, uh, the lockdown. Meanwhile, China's recent rise has, I think, in large part been a product of its own solipsism. I think Western opinion mattered rather less to Beijing. Uh, so Western opinion mattered rather more to Beijing than many Chinese elites would admit. But overall, I think it still mattered less than the driving convictions of the CCP and still does. Some will remember that back in 1989, there was a great deal of attention in the West and in Japan to a then very powerful book, Carol van Wolferen's controversial The Enigma of Japanese Power, which post posited an opaque nexus at the heart of Japanese government and society, um, and uh, uh, claimed it was inaccessible to outsiders and made a mockery of Japan's pretensions to liberal democracy. Uh, it was not a popular book in Japan, but it was widely discussed, I think it's fair to say. Today, of course, it's the enigma of Chinese power that's really proving a much harder phenomenon to analyze particularly since China can no longer be plausibly in any sense being termed to be on a path towards liberal democracy, if indeed it ever was, which I think some of us would, would have some issues with. So let me take a few minutes now to examine some of the historical frameworks for that newness in East Asia. And may I say at this point, um, I mean no insult to any of the good people who write theoretical essays at the journal uh, Qiu Shi, 
the theoretical organ of the Chinese Communist Party. I'm sure many of you have piles of it um, to uh, buy in your in your bedrooms to uh, entertain you at night. And I would suggest that along with some of the most uh, popular biaoti and koha uh, that they have put forward, uh, seek truth from facts, fundamental contradictions, a new biaoti uh, should be uh, biaoti, I should say, should be added. Fake it till you make it. Because when it comes to newness, when it comes to innovation, assertion is a large part of the trick that brings about success. Proclaiming a new era, as it turns out, can be a really important part of the process of actually creating one. And again, Japan, I think, has been a really important exemplar for what we now see in the context of China. I think one of the reasons that the constant reinvention of Japan has slightly um, been obscured in outsiders' uh, uh, interpretations is this big, baggy, messy wrapper, uh, not wrapper in the Kanye sense, but as in wrapping for a, a parcel, that uh, has defined uh, much of its 20th century. And that is the reign of the Showa Emperor that lasted from 1926 up to January of 1989. Showa was a very strange period, and many of the analysts, not least um, uh, the wonderful historian Carol Gluck at, at Columbia, its strangeness comes in part because it contains so much large and contains multitudes. In other words, Showa was sort of the Walt Whitman of historical eras, assuming that Walt Whitman had been into brutal colonial conquest. To encompass flawed democracy, authoritarian state, occupation state, and revived liberal democracy, all within six decades, suggests Japan almost as an opposite to China, a capacity to contain absolute opposites within one era. But the 1990s did seem to defeat even that particular protean capacity. The end of Showa formally came, of course, in 1989, and perhaps it was a coincidence, but nonetheless the case that the ability of the era to reinvent itself ended at that point with instead what we've seen in the last 30 years, a much flatter sort of self-definition. Japan got old in 1990, and China rose again to become new. Now, why does it matter to remember these longs up, long, up and, long ups and downs of Japan's past century at this moment? Because I do find myself worrying that the only narrative of newness in Asia today is the one put forward by China. It may be faking it till it makes it, but it's no longer faking it. It's very real. And because so much has been said about China's new global influence, the idea that other states may have actually in the past had such newness and may have in future, is I think a bit lacking from our analysis. One of the oddities of the West's view of East Asia is that it spent about 30 years from 1960s having hysterical fantasies about Japan and the next 30 up to the present day virtually ignoring it. Because newness is different from size. Japan is still the third biggest economy in the world, but its narrative both domestically and internationally and its reception internationally no longer reflects that reality. India has a population younger and larger than China's, but slogans about India's renaissance still have much more valency at home than abroad. People do not fantasize at night about a semi-totalitarian world shaped by Indian fintech service, uh, service companies, or at least I don't. Likewise, rising powerhouses such as Indonesia may have economic clout, but they have little narrative power, at least so far. And I would point out, of course, that these are all still tied to nation states. And I do think that Transnational ideas have had less valency in terms of the certainly post-war Asian settlement than perhaps that brief moment of Pan-Asianism in the pre-war that, of course, essentially was given, had its credibility removed by Japan's empire.
We're also, I think, missing out on some terms that helped us in the past to understand our current moment. It used to be okay to talk about things as revolutions. And um, indeed, Mao, uh, of course, talked of a cultural revolution. She's changes. I think are likely to change far more things in the world, actually, than Mao's cultural revolution ever did. But we're not allowed to talk about it as a revolution. And I think that missing out on that is a bit of a shame. Because after all, revolutions and redefinitions of time and renewals of time have always been closely linked. Not all have gone as far as the French Revolution and redefined the months, Thermidor and all of that. But as the Historian Zhu Hongzhao points out, the experience of Mao's base area in Yan'an during World War II was based on an idea of revolutionary time combined with a project of renewal attached to that process, one that eventually produced a, quotes, new China in 1949. Major Japan also adapted its calendar in 1873, combining um, a Gregorian calendar with the traditional Japanese one. The 1980s, it's worth remembering, before Tiananmen Square um, was also termed a Xin Shidai rather than Shiqi, also a new era. And yet the 1980s in retrospect, historically, was clearly not a time when China was in control of its own narrative. It was still looking towards the capitalist West. And again, uh, the wonderful book by Julian Gewirtz, Unlikely Partners, about China's economic development in the 1980s and how that was linked to intellectual ideas is a wonderful guide to that period. In contrast, the new China of 1949 and the new era of 2017 and following are both, I think, seizures, revolutionary seizures, I'm going to say, of a narrative to make a case that China is in control, just as major Japan did for itself in the late 19th century. You could argue, rightly, that if Xi Jinping's new era is really a revolution, it's certainly not a popular revolution. It's not bottom up. True enough, but nor, of course, was the Meiji Restoration a revolution by another name. I also want to add that this type of newness can be highly gendered in its historical framing. The new man and the new woman, both terms you hear through the 20th century, were not simply flip sides of the same phenomenon in the Asia. In particular, I'll note briefly that a gendered history of capitalism in East Asia, I think, looks different from, say, a history of liberal democracy. Over the past half century, women and men have had equal voting rights in Japan and South Korea, the latter since the 1980s, of course, and an equal lack of them in China. But if we look, for instance, at how many women have become entrepreneurs in China, as opposed to in the two democracies, the narrative of what the new woman is in Asia, I think, becomes distinctly different. In other words, pointing out that newness has a whole variety of different valences. Let me now take a few moments, if I may, to give a bit more context to what I've alluded to, which is the idea in China in particular, that over the past century, there's been a process in which thinkers those who shape the era perceived themselves as living in a period of world historical time. And I think that this was particularly notable, an area which, to be fair, is a slight tick for me because it's one of my you know, research areas, which is the period of Sino-Japanese war in the mid 20th century, which eventually becomes part of the global conflict. Writing in 1938, the first year, full year of China's war against Japan, uh, the historian uh, Jiang Tingfu reflected on the difficult situation that China had found itself in, not just because of the conflict, but in its wider quest to modernize. And he wrote in one of his pieces, we can't help but be in a dangerous transitional period. National strength depends on ourselves to develop it. Foreigners can't help us and nor can they stop us. And elsewhere I've written and have been developing the idea that through much of the 20th century, this idea of dangerous transition 
um, in some ways similar to the Agamben variation on Schmidt of the idea of state of exception, I think is something that shapes a great deal of what Chinese thinkers about chronology are preoccupied with during this time. And the idea of the Feichang Shuqi, the special time, the special period, is also part of that mixture. Of course, when Zhang Tifu was writing, China had embarked on an immense war with Japan, but it was not just the war that con constituted that transitional period. Zhang was actually talking about it in the context of not one but two revolutions, the first in 1911, the second, of course, in 1927. Uh, with the stated in, uh, intention, of course, of bringing the um, revolution of Sun Yat-sen's Three People's Principles to power. And for Jiang Tingfu and many of his contemporaries, the period of revolutions in the early 20th century, and I think we can call it that, was one of extreme contingency, newness, its associated protein qualities, and unpredictability. Don't forget that at that time, it seemed at some level relatively possible that China might become a parliamentary republic, or a fractured federal state, or a geographical expression rather than a country, in the words of at least one Japanese invader, uh, a vassal state of, of Japan if it had lost the war, or indeed a nationalist state with a vanguard party, which indeed is what happened at least during that period under the Guomindang. Amongst the least likely outcomes at that stage was that China would become a radical communist state. Perhaps the only idea even less likely than that at the time was the idea that a few decades later, China would become a highly centralized state capitalist entity with massive in, uh, capacity to innovate in technology. Because those double revolutions of 1911 and 1927 did not resolve the problems that had, uh, that had uh, caused the collapse of the last dynasty, the Qing. And in the next two lectures, I want to talk a bit about the way in which the affective and I think highly gendered nature of that revolution forced people to think about emotional response um, to changing politics in a way that I think shapes awareness and self-awareness of being new. And in another lecture, also talk more about the, uh, to return to the subject of science and technology as a way of bringing a sense of order and purpose to a highly disordered era but I'll come back to those, as I say, in the next two lectures, which I hope you can join me for. I want to stick with Jiang Tingfu, the historian, because he was of that generation shaped in the shadow of the 1911 revolution. And when it broke out, he was just 16 years old. So he was part of that first generation to live their lives as adults of the Republic rather than imperial subjects, uh, a subject explored in fascinating detail by my colleague, uh, Henrietta Harrison, uh, formerly of, of Harvard, of course. And, Jiang Tingfu is, is a figure I always like to bring up on these occasions because, of course, he always had a great Harvard connection uh, in that he helped when he was teaching at Tsinghua to train John K. Fairbank himself, so very appropriate for our uh, discussion uh, uh, today. And he became, of course, also as well as a historian, a major figure in the nationalist government. But writing, or rather not in the nationalist government, but serving the nationalist government perhaps would be the, the most accurate way to put it. But writing between the late 1920s and the mid 1940s, Zhang looked back at the task of nation building during the revolutionary end, uh, era, which had only just ended with two critiques in mind. One critique was based in political economy. In other words, how successful or otherwise had China's revolutions been in solving certain fundamental social issues. And the second was a more uh, less materialist, more effective understanding of revolution as a means of becoming uh, engineers of human souls, as Stalin would have put it. And Zhang defined himself as living in liminal times, that transition which he referred to in that 1938 article. In other words, he saw himself, to use a slightly anachronistic term, I think, as living in contemporary history. 
In other words, during the middle of a set of world historical trends, which he considered an appropriate point of comparison and assessment for, for China at the moment that he was, uh, was, was writing in 1938. For him, it was defined by the shift away from what he thought was a clearly defined single path towards industrial modernity until World War I, uh, um, which countries with, as he put it, dysfunctional politics, such as China, Japan, Turkey, and Russia, were working their way towards. And instead, as he then put it, after the Great War, thanks to the Soviet Revolution and the fascist movements in Italy, Germany, and Japan, the world's political and economic system was turned on its back. And he finishes that piece by saying, at the moment, the world does not have a common direction and every country has its own answer as to what modern culture is. Now, ending quote there. That comment from the 1930s, from 1938, about the lack of direction is powerful, I think, because I think it speaks to our own times more than perhaps would have been the case 20, 30 years ago. There have been moments, whether defined by Norman Angel or by Francis Fukuyama, in which the direction of travel appears to be clear and quite Whiggish. Other moments are less clear cut, and I suppose that we live in such a moment now, just as Zhang found that he was living in one at his particular moment. Xi Jinping, of course, I think does have a very clear idea of where he thinks the world is going, and we will finish off in a few moments with a return to that 2017 speech. But Jiang, I think, um, used this idea of a kind of hinge moment in world historical time to essentially work through the idea that China's future and its present and future were highly protean and highly contingent and not based on some inevitable teleology. He would change his mind again, by the way, after 1945, when he turned to a kind of idea of social democracy, but in a rather tragic coda, he recognized, I think, that it happened at a moment when actually social democracy was perhaps the least likely of any outcomes for China at that, um, particular, uh, that particular moment. But he came off the back, of course, of certain other elements during the previous years in which newness had been absolutely a central feature of the way in which the polity thought about itself, the new life movement, begun in 1935 uh, under Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government, uh, beginning in Jiangxi, moving its way um, outwards uh, into the rest of China, and actually in some ways gaining further purpose because of the outbreak of war with Japan, where the new life movement was incorporated into this wider sense of national endeavor against the, uh, the Japanese. And Japan itself also, stood as an alternative at that time. So if on the left-hand side in this poster, you have a Chinese wartime poster in which um, the kind of idea of, of national struggle against the invader after 1937 becomes important. On the right-hand side, you have an image from the Japanese empire of what they explicitly refer to, of course, as Shinchitsujo, the new order that uh, was formally declared in November, 1938, just a few months after Jiang Tingfu wrote that particular um, essay. An exemplar in that case of a former democracy with an empire, admittedly, that had, that had mutated at high speed and in economic crisis into a self-declared new uh, order in that sense. And I use this particular example here rather than concentrating on Mao's China, the other new China of, the, of that era, because it is, I think, the one time when China and Japan are essentially in contest with each other rather than some particular sort of Western modernity, whether it's the United States, the Soviet Union, or um, some other model that has, I think, been more characteristic of the other periods. As I've indicated, the war over Asian 
econ economistic modernity linked to innovative politics was perhaps more of a baton relay between Japan and China, with perhaps the handover in retrospect being sometime in the early 1990s. So this sort of direct competition you see exemplified in these two posters is a slightly unusual historical phenomenon. Let me draw to a conclusion with a few minutes that brings us back to the present day. I hope pointing up some of these aspects of how the project of, of newness, of innovation, has linked to questions of identity and order in mid 20th century East Asia, enables us to give perspective to Xi Jinping's declaration of that new era in 2017. And let me, at this point, pay tribute to uh, Daniel Tobin's excellent commentary on the speech that Xi Jinping gave at the time. You can find the essay on the CSIS website on the uh, speech by Xi about the new era for socialism with Chinese characteristics given at the 19th uh, National Party Congress uh, in October 2017. And Tobin points out that in one of the most important passages of the speech, Xi Jinping speaks about Chinese socialism's entrance into a new era uh, and furthermore talks about blazing a new uh, trail. Tobin's conclusion is that this essentially does change the nature of the US-China relationship and to finish with Tobin's concluding words on that piece, um, I think they're entirely right, the quotes quoting him, the new era is different from what went before. Tobin's essay, which as I said I highly recommend, goes on to a fascinating exposition of a range of major issues in understanding the goals of Xi Jinping's China, including the enduring importance of Marxism-Leninism, as well as its desire to change global order to provide a more conducive environment for China's security. And I should say that I agree absolutely with that analysis. But for me today, the central importance of that speech by uh, Xi Jinping is slightly different. It's much more for me about the clear self-definition of being new that underpins all the other agendas. In other words, the use of the word new is not simply trivial or, um, or by the way. The contrast, today is perhaps much more with the US than it is with Japan, but it is evident that I think that definition of newness does not stand in historical isolation. And the idea of rejuvenation and renaissance, fuxing and the other terms that you will have seen if you, if you look at China that are central to its self-definition are now very, very much associated with China in a way that it is harder to associate with the Japan of 2021. And those future lectures that will come up next week and the week after will deal with the emotional register and sense of teleology that underpin that speech and other aspects of China's new era, but as I say, in a wider East Asian context. So I started this lecture on East Asia with a reference to Scotland. And as I bring it to a close now, let me return to Britain, if I may, not least because that's where I'm sitting at the moment, thanks to the pandemic. In our Brexit world here in Britain, we are speaking of a new era in which Britain is global. And as I speak to you, a new integrated review about Britain's place in the world is about to be published tomorrow. You can put that by your bedside along with all the copies of Chiusha Journal and uh, they will provide a stimulating mix, I'm sure. How real this new era is remains to be, to be made. And I think nothing is preordained on this either. There's plenty of opportunities to, to seize. But I find it very interesting that so much of Britain's national discourse now and this is more obvious to those of us who are in Britain, so if you haven't noticed, do look out for this. So much of our discourse in Britain today is tied to our new presence in Asia, and East Asia in particular. It's expressed in different forms, 
uh, a lot of talk about embracing growing economies in Asia through gestures just such as joining the Comprehensive Partnership for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, CPTPP, even though actual growth rates in many of the states involved, such as Vietnam, are, are good, but not spectacular. They're also based on the idea of projection of power. When we talk about the HMS Queen Elizabeth, the new British aircraft carrier being sent out somewhere, they never talk about it going to the North Atlantic or even not so much to the Indian Ocean, but being sent out to the Asia Pacific region um, again in, in exercises with the Quad. And sometimes both of those strands come at the same time to the probable amusement of observers in both Beijing and in Tokyo. Different parts of the British government have both have, have recently claimed that both they want to restrict Chinese investment into the UK but, and, um, uh, and send a naval vessel to the South China Sea to, to show China what's what, but also to do an $80 billion worth uh, uh, trade deal with China all at the same time. So fitting those aspirations together should be an interesting political uh, uh, set of agendas. And of course, a large part of this is the flip side of a government, British government, that currently wants to downplay the fact that it's part of Europe. The Japanese thinker Fukuzawa Yukichi would have recognized this as the opposite of his idea, which was about Japan leaving Asia and entering Europe back in the Meiji era. He would have called it the Datsu o Niu A, so uh, leaving uh, Europe and entering Asia. I find it significant that in the search to define itself as new, global Britain, Brexit Britain's ruling elite, seek that newness not in Latin America, not in Sub-Saharan Africa, where there are actually significant ties of history with Britain, but in East Asia. East Asia is where the glamour is. It may be an emotionally complex glamour, the desire to be part of a Chinese story that is transfixing the world and whose end point may be death or glory, or perhaps something slightly less lurid in between. But it's a poignant example of how East Asian modernity even today means a great deal to many people who are nowhere near the region, and see its glamour not as real lives and real people, but more as a reflection of their own preoccupations. Newness, after all, is in the eye of the beholder too. And many people looking at East Asia today, and perhaps China in particular, do see it as driven by people who do indeed work, to reference that Alastair Gray line again, as if they live in the early days, not just of a new nation, but of a new order, although whether it's a better nation or order, does remain to be seen. And that pointed, very political gaze is tied to strong emotional feelings. And that will be the subject of my next lecture in just a week's time. Thank you for sitting with me today. I'm now going to turn over to Professor Arne Vestad for some thoughts and comments. And then I know we have 10, 15 minutes after that for some Q&A as well. So I look forward to that. Arne, over to you. Thank you very much, Roman, for a wonderful lecture. There are very few people I can think of, if anyone, who can draw up the big picture in terms of China's and East Asia's newness the way that you do and, and present it to us in ways that open up all kinds of, uh, of, of questions and, and, and suggestions, which I'll return to in a moment. I, I want to thank the Fairbank Center for inviting me back to Harvard uh, to do the comments on Professor Mitter's lecture. It's always a pleasure to be back. I also want to note in sadness that this is the first Roy Shower lecture that I've been part of without Professor Vogel. So Ezra Vogel uh, was a friend and mentor to me as he was to everyone who was involved with East Asia studies at, at Harvard and across the world. Uh, he was also, by the way, the first commentator uh, on my Roy Shower lectures in, in, in 2017, just showing 
his generosity, um, both in terms of his time and in, in, in spirit. So Professor Vogel will be, will be greatly missed, but he has also set an example, I think, for all of us to try in various ways to live up to when we approach uh, the region that we're discussing today. As I said, no one better to introduce us to that region in a broad sense than Professor Mitter. So from his first book on the Manchurian myth to his most recent book last year on China's good war, he has been preoccupied with Chinese nationalism and various forms of Chinese nation building, increasingly in a comparative context, uh, which I have much enjoyed. He is a very prominent public intellectual. Uh, he has built the Oxford China Center, the prime uh, center for the study of, of China, not just in Britain, but in, in Europe. Uh, and he is a, schol a scholar of absolutely first rank, as he has just proven to us here today. And I find his discussion of newness in East Asia a wonderful way of getting into some of the discussion points that are there today about the current situation in broad terms, but also about the future. So that's what I'm going to concentrate on in my, in my comments. I was interviewed this morning, by the way, by a journalist from Xinhua, um, which of course means New China, the New China News Agency in this case. And the emphasis on New China, newness, uh, is something that has come up again and again in China, probably uh, from the mid 19th century onwards in various forms, as Professor Mitter has now demonstrated. The big question, of course, for those lay laying claim to newness in a Chinese and East Asian context and in a broad global context is what kind of newness it is. What kind of new power is China today? And on this as well, I think Professor Mitter, uh, in a um, recent piece that he referred to in his lecture, has given uh, a really good starting point. Uh, he refers to authoritarianism, consumerism, globalization, and technology. And of all these, it is the link between authoritarianism and technology, I think, which is the most striking aspect of what the current regime in Beijing is trying to do. It tries to connect a particular version of authoritarian rule to the immense possibilities that we are discovering are there for all kinds of authoritarians um, in employing technology in their favor. I'm a little bit more uncertain, at least as of yet, whether authoritarianism of the Chinese kind is also an ideology. It certainly is a certain set of things to believe in. And, and it's very clear that Xi Jinping wants authoritarianism, his style, to be an ideology. And quite a few US commentators, uh, I must say, uh, also want it to be an ideology because it gives them something to contend against and something that uh, looks worse at least in American eyes and probably in European eyes as well, um, than much of the chaos that this country has been engulfed in over the past four years. But is it really an ideology in a cohesive fashion? Uh, authoritarians, it seems to me, do things differently, but not in ways that always have much in common with other authoritarians. And it does depend me, it does remind me a little bit on the interwar uh, era when uh, authoritarian leaders admired each other, uh, think Hitler, Mussolini, and the Hungarians and the Romanians, uh, and Franco, while developing nationalisms that were inherently incomplete. Uh, an authoritarian leader may like other authoritarians, 
um, but would fear them as well, sometimes in quite an existential setting. This link between newness of different kinds and fear is something that was underpinning parts of Professor Mitter's lecture. Um, I think it will be interesting to hear his further reflections on this. Uh, it seems to me that this is one of the things in very troubling ways uh, that China today and Japan in the early 20th century have in common. The emphasis on fear rather than self-confidence connected to the rise, the fear of encirclement, the fear of, of economic dependence, much of this is being replayed and in ways that for an historian um, are quite worrisome. Now that brings us to the question of whether Xi Jinping's China today imply a global revolution, which Professor Meta uh, drew up. In economic power, yes, probably. It is a revolution uh, of a sort. In strategic power, possibly. Though we haven't quite seen the consequences of that yet, at least not unless you happen to live close to the rising China. Uh, in the sign of international affairs, less so, or at least less so so far. China wants more for itself, um, as, as the Vogel was fond of pointing out, but not necessarily the undoing of the international system that has been put in place, at least not for you know, another um, decade or maybe more than that, um, or in, in ways that are very profound and, 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 and very deep. It wants more for China than what has been the case in the past, but not necessarily the undoing of an international system that has worked well for China so far. So the significance of China in terms of uh, its global rise is first and foremost economic. And I think it's worth, in terms of the newness issue, to think about that a little bit further, because there are also people, maybe particularly here in the United States, uh, who are claiming that the rise of China might easily, the way the rise of Japan was to some extent, a short-term rather than a long-term story. Uh, I'm among, among those who believe that that is wrong, uh, that it's a faulty approach to what is happening in the world today. There will be trouble, there will be many difficulties in terms of China's rise in economic terms. It will not be unilinear in any kind of way, as Professor Mitter pointed out. But that's the case with great powers in general. I mean, look at the rise of the United States in the 19th century, which was interrupted uh, by a devastating civil war in the 1860s, but the rise continued. Um, and even if China does not uh, get into those kinds of situations, if the uh, changes are political or even social uh, more than military, uh, there will still be a lot of change going on in, in, in China's future, which will not necessarily undo its rise in, in economic terms. The big question um, is, of course, to me, I think to many observers, what will happen domestically in China? Um, Professor Mito reminds us of how often Japan's newness was redefined. That's definitely also the case for China. It's been the case for China up to now. Uh, it will be the case for China, I would argue, in the future as well. There are different forms of newness at work, even within the People's Republic. Um, I'm working on a book on the 1970s. 
from the long 1970s in Chinese history now, together with Professor Chen Jian. And one of the episodes that's very interesting in that is the construction of, of special economic zones uh, in the very late 1970s. One of which, the one in Shenzhen, just outside of, of, of Hong Kong, was undertaken by Xi Jinping, so Xi Jinping's father. And there is a wonderful record of Deng Xiaoping, China's overall leader at the time, um, instructing the older Xi on how to make a special economic zone. So Xi Jinping tells his boss, you know, I'm a communist. I have no experience in creating capitalism. And then tells him, well, think back to when we were in the base area. Right? and we were under great pressure and we had to break out in order to save ourselves. Think of it a little bit like that and you'll be all right. Take it till you make it. There, there is something in, in that in terms of newness in China in, in more than one sense. Now, one issue that I'd like in conclusion to have um, Professor Mitter's comments on is how the aspects of newness or development or rapid change uh, may apply to Chinese governance. As I've often argued at, at, at Harvard before, uh, in my view, the governance of China, the way it's carried out now, is not, as we would say in the UK, fit for purpose. Uh, it has a great deal of capacity, but its penchant for extreme control and massive deceit is not to everyone's liking, even those who buy into various forms of Chinese nationalism within the country. Xi Jinping's China also has a tendency to take on too many enemies, from Alibaba uh, recently to Chinese Muslims, not to mention minorities within China itself, and not uh, to mention the region, which uh, the new regime is also very uh, problematic in, in many ways, in terms of how it deals with its power. Um, so newness of different kinds, I think, might be an issue to look at here also in terms of possible alternatives that have not quite been realized yet. I just wrote an introduction for a book by the very interesting Chinese political philosopher, Zhao Tingyang, um, who likes to write about Tianxia. So the, the, the concept of all under heaven, which he, seems, uh, he sees as a uh, good introduction for how new China, the newest China, might behave in terms of international affairs with an emphasis on harmony and inclusivity as opposed to developments in the West um, that are much more aggressive, much more based on inequality and um, subsumation. Now, the problem with Zhao's otherwise excellent book, I will recommend it, just out or just coming out, I think, uh, later this spring by California Press, is that it doesn't explain Chinese imperial expansion under the Tianxia concept in any meaningful way. If this had just been about harmony and inclusivity in the past, just like Professor Zhao postulates for the future, then of course China would have looked very different and it would have probably be organized according to different principles. I wonder if some of the same is true in terms of the governance deficit um, for uh, Xi Jinping's China as well. A lot of capacity but also a tendency to overdo things in terms of dealing with others. So Professor Mitter reminds us, I think very powerfully in his outstanding lecture, that East Asia is where the glamour is at the moment. And it's very hard to disagree with that. 
It's also obviously where danger lies. It's also where things could go terribly wrong in terms of international affairs over the next decade or two decades. Very few other parts of the world that have that kind of significance and those kinds of problems. What worries me is that authoritarians in trouble uh, at home, they have a tendency to seek achievements abroad. And in many cases, these achievements are not peaceful. That's one of the issues, I think, in terms of newness that we need to think about with regard to China today, where militarism is a part of that newness. So it was a great pleasure to be able to comment uh, on um, Professor Mitter's really outstanding Reichauer lecture. Uh, I look forward to hearing his, his comments on what I had to say, just briefly. Um, and then we will open up for questions that will be coming in, I hope. I can see some of them have come in already uh, from the audience. So Rana, back over to you. Anna, thank you very much uh, indeed. And I think everyone listening will have known that uh, choosing Professor Vestard to be the, the commentator was probably the best move that I made throughout the entirety of setting up this, this lecture because uh, you managed to crystallize as always some of the key issues and you know bring to mind some of the unresolved ends that will need to, to, be, to be thought through. So thank you very much for uh, the, those indications. Because time is quite tight, and I know there are questions, I'm just gonna give a brief answer to this um, uh, set of thoughts, but rest assured I will be thinking about them for, for much longer than that. The question, I think, of whether China is putting forward an ideological basis for its rise, I think is important and interesting. And I, I would suggest that, you know, I think if one wants to, and there are exercises that have done this, one can see that there is something integrated that maybe is around the eyes of, I mean, if you want to sort of put the different adjectives together, there is a sort of developmental collectivist authoritarian welfareism or welfareist authoritarian developmentalism, depending which way you want to put the, the, the elements together. But you could, you could see where all those various bits come from and where they say something that is distinctive and non-liberal, um, but, economistic in terms of its, of its intention. But one of the reasons I chose this term newness is that I wanted to get away slightly from the idea of, of, of ideology, because in a sense, if you think about Japan and that long period it had of, if I, as I say, dividing it sort of 30 years before 1990, Western hysteria about Japan, 30 years afterwards, you know, ig ignoring it. Um, Japan was never an ideological player in that sense, essentially to be defanged of ideology in 1945, you know, pan-Asianism and, and all that surrounded it clearly was, was rejected very strongly, not least in this sort of baggy Showa definition that contained everything and, you know, therefore could be, could be highly, highly protean. And I think by using this term, I wanted to get away from the idea of whether or not there's a coherent ideology. And again, I mentioned Daniel Tobin's fascinating essay, and, you know, I'm also separately from this really interested in the question of how much of what China does today is Marxist-Leninist and how much is Confucian or we would call it how much is legalist. It's almost like a chromatogram where you can find these elements. But having said all that, and, and to cut to the chase, I'm still gonna set those questions aside slightly in terms of uh, response to this because the reason I used the term newness was deliberate. It's actually a slightly awkward term. I mean, it, it does exist as a word, but it's not a word that you necessarily use very often. And it's it's not the same thing. I have I was a bit naughty and slightly uh, interchanged it with both novelty and innovation. But actually, neither of those things is quite the same thing. It's more the quality of presenting yourself as as new. Uh, maybe I, I used a slightly rude term, uh, at least uh, in terms of Chinese friends, of faking it till you make it. But as you'll know, that those who do it well, it's a compliment rather than anything else. Perhaps I should say. Uh, 
become Shanghai until you can become uh, Janda. Uh, in that sense, that might be a, a better way to, 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 to think of it. Because in the end, I was sort of looking to extrapolate backward from where we are now. When I look at why the British government seems you know, really kind of captivated by the idea of, of, of dealing with, with China, it's not as if you know Britain, I think, genuinely does have all sorts of things to say and do in the world, but dealing with China probably is not one of those things. I think it's, it's fair to say, maybe it's part of a wider coalition, but you know, it's not a core purpose of post EU Britain's activities. And yet it's a very, very big phenomenon here at the moment. And I don't think it's because there's a specific ideological precept that you know, liberal democratic Britain finds so obnoxious that in the same way it did for you know, Soviet communism, it must reject it at all costs. It's more to do with the fact, I think, as I say, that China for good or ill has put forward this ability to show that it's where the action is in a way that you know, Japan, third biggest economy in the world, India, rising power, all that, just don't do in the same sort of way. I'm actually honest about it in that I don't know quite what the right way to define what that thing is, and therefore newness is the way that I've come to it. But I will freely say to you that I have you know, slightly sidestepped the ideological question, which is a really interesting one, partly because I don't know the answer, and partly because actually what I'm describing, I think, is politically immensely important. You know, it, it speaks in a sense to Joe Nye's ideas of, of soft power, even though it's not really quite the same thing because it's not, you know, we can say many things about China, but the idea that people are sort of seduced into, into following it because they enjoy the values, that that's not what's going on. And yet there is something clearly compelling about China. And it is compelling about China in a way that is true for no other major society on earth at the moment. Uh, and so historicizing that is really what I'm trying to make my way through in, 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 in these lectures. But I'll, I'll thank stop you there. Very much. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much, questions. that's excellent. Um, we could continue this discussion all uh, afternoon or evening as it's soon your time, but let us try to turn to the audience and a few of the questions that come up there. Is it okay, Rama, that we do two at a time? Just so that uh, any, any, any way you want to run it, uh, Arne, absolutely. Okay, so we have one question from Sam about um, uh, China's new historical rights policy with regard to the South China Sea, particularly the Spratly Islands dispute. Uh, and Sam asks whether um, this sets a pattern for uh, what Chinese power is going to be seen like now and, and in the future. And one question from Asaf about um, different regime types in, in East Asia uh, and whether collective dignity is something that is based or asserted uh, within these forms of, um, of new regimes, um, defining their beliefs uh, on the purpose of, of growing power. So, so one on, on, on historical rights policy and the other one on the concept of collective dignity. Rana? Yeah, thanks very much uh, uh, indeed. Good to, good to put those two, uh, two, two together. Let me go with dignity first, if I, if, if I may. And I would say that that has been something that has clearly been an immense um, obsession of, of Chinese elites for a very long time. And I think many people on, you know, uh, 
in, in, in the chat on this lecture will be aware of debates about national humiliation and its importance. And I, I won't uh, stress those at this point beyond mentioning them because I think that in that audience they're, they're, they're pretty well, uh, well known. But I would like to put a different idea, which some of you may have encountered. It's not my idea. It comes from the former British Foreign Secretary Devin Miliband, who has been writing quite a lot about you know, the changing nature of, of global power. And he has, I, I think, coined uh, this term, the age of impunity which is what's going on at the uh, at the moment. I want to, in other words, the idea that nowadays powers can essentially, if they're strong enough, do what they want. Uh, it's a sort of essentially kind of Hobbesian uh, uh, position. But I'd like to do something that I don't think um, David uh, Miliband has, has, has yet done in his formulation, but maybe that will, will, will come at, at some point, which is to link it to the idea of, uh, of, of dignity. Because I think it's worth noting that essentially for some actors, Having to having the capacity to essentially define norms and to be able to say that you know you'll do what you want because you have the capacity to do it, that is a source of dignity in and of itself. It is yet another one of the liberal ticks that we have, not least as a liberal myself, that we have to sort of perhaps get away from assuming is absolutely normal because we happen to share that belief that finding yourself willing to be constrained by particular sorts of norms and boundaries is in and of itself necessarily a normative position. Now, just before I, you know, take away from, uh, step away from that point, I will add that if you think about the nature of pre-modern Chinese culture, there is a huge ethical repertoire based not least around the ideas that we would broadly call Confucian or that they reflecting many other thinkers uh, as well. I guess, by the way, Zhao Tingyang, who you mentioned, might think of himself as a sort of you know, Confucian in, in, in some ways, and he's certainly a very interesting, interesting thinker. And that is in some ways absolutely about the dignity of being um, constrained by particular types, types of norms. But China today has Confucian elements in it, but it is not by any means a purely Confucian society. And I think that if we think of the 20th century as a whole, as one of those periods of dialectic, to use a good Marxist word, in which both the tendency to wish to um, you know, try and gather value from the Confucian project in the modern world, and also to understand the dynamic that seized Mao when he wrote in one of his early pieces, Mao Zedong, that there are times when one should not be a junza, a gentleman, but instead uh, ride barebacked on the back of a horse through the valleys, making the sides of the valley ring out with your cries. Uh, in other words, you know, the abandonment of, of that sort of... And by the way, so just one other thing, Jiang Tingfu, the historian I've mentioned, who, uh, you know, is, is probably the most civilized character you could manage, you could think of, you know, the, uh, the Nankai professor and Tsinghua professor and, uh, and nationalist government bureaucrat. He wrote an extremely interesting piece in about the same sort of year, 38, 39, about how it was very, very important to throw off these norms of, of, of human society and instead, you know, kind of give in to the, the inner... Uh, well, some of you may, may be aware of the work of Professor Jordan, Pe Jordan Peterson, and while I will not uh, comment on, on his work in any detail uh, here. Perhaps that sort of sense that that can be dignity too. And I think that understanding some of that in terms of what's going on may help to explain, if not necessarily always to excuse, some of the dynamics. Um, and that was something about dignity. Sorry, Arna, what was the other question that you pulled out from, from there? It was about... Oh, sorry, I think you're on mute. You're back on mute again. Um, the other one was about the um, uh, issue of historical rights as applied to the South China Sea conflict. Yes. So, I mean, I'm not 
here, I think, going to uh, uh, be in a position and probably it would be unwise for me to make any kind of great pronouncements on who is in the right and who is in the wrong in terms of, uh, of, of the presence in the, in, in the South China Sea. But what I will say is that I've mentioned before that assertion of claims, I mean, the use of, of speech acts, I guess you would put it that, that you could put it that sort of way, is a very important constitutive element in terms of understanding how you can create that sense that you have a political project that people have to take seriously. And I don't want to say too much about it now, Anna, actually, because I want to try and tempt these few of our good folks to come back next week, but I'm going to talk about emotion. And I think that in that context, actually, I'm going to say a bit more about territorial issues and how they link to that. And by the way, off the back of that, I will also say that, as I've said today, China, I'm a China specialist, and China's at the heart of what we're talking about today. But I do think the dialectic and the comparisons and the contrast and the engagement with Japan remains an immensely important thread through all this. So when we talk about territory and China in the late, you know, early 21st century, we have to remember that many of these debates have been had before in the context of other important actors in the region. I mean, Japan is one of them, but not the only one as well. So one thing, if anything, I want to get away from is the idea that what China is doing is entirely distinctive, unique, has no historical precedent, and in some ways, you know, it's something that just came at us from nowhere. Mm. Obviously, there's much about it that's highly, highly distinctive, but actually historicizing it, I think, is both necessary and eminently possible. That's a, that's a really excellent point, Rana. Um, and very important, as you say, for the, the uh, next lecture that you're going to hold. Uh, let me run through a few here, just very briefly, because we're getting a lot of really good questions. Um, and I'll try to summarize them as best I can. And my apologies to those who asked very good, but also fairly long questions for not being able to cover all of them. So Paul here asked, um, basically, is she aiming for global hegemony? Is that the background of what is happening now? You could answer that one, yes or no, I'm sure, Rana. Um, um, Paul, Paul, I'll have to phone him up first and ask him. I'll, I'll let you know uh, after that. <laughs> Mark Elliott asks, um, uh, in part of his question, uh, Mark asks, uh, would you argue that the assignment of positive valiance to novelty is itself evidence of a so-called modern attitude? If not, where does the belief that if it's new, it's good come from? And Jeff Wasserstrom, um, who is also on this call, asks, um, I wonder if Professor Mitter could reflect a bit on how focusing on a term like future or futuristic rather than new would reinforce or take in a slightly different direction the argument here. So Jeff wants to ask about whether uh, replacing future with new would make a significant difference for your argument. And then finally, Vivian Xu um, is asking uh, about one of the points that I made about fear and um, how you see that linking into newness. And that's, uh, I think, an interesting discussion in overall terms. As, as you said, I'm sure you're going to return to some of that later on. but. Uh, since we have a few minutes, let's see what you have to say to those. Indeed. And again, I'd love to you know, spend half an hour each on each of these questions, but I know that time is very limited, so I'll try and give brief ones with apologies to the questioners and promise that another time, another place, I'd be happy to pick up the, uh, pick up the thoughts. Let me 
just say something first on, on Mark's point. And again, you flagged up something that uh, I'm really glad to have in the conversation that new has not traditionally been a term of approbation in the wider you know, kind of trajectory of Chinese history. I had actually a section which, again, for reasons of time, I had to cut from uh, the lecture, which was actually another writer of the mid 20th century talking about how various people were returning to the old ways once they, and this is actually, you know, in a sense, a kind of contradiction as well that emerges within the, the Guomindang as, as well, where at times they're venerating the old, at other times uh, providing a kind of, you know, um, merit, making, making, making the new meritorious. But yes, I mean, I think there, there is that um, period in the late 1930, 20th century when the establishment of the idea of the new and also, you know, for the most radical and traditionalist, the, the rejection of, of, of the old becomes a sort of moral good in and of itself. I think the establishment of Xinjiangian, uh, New Youth magazine, uh, which actually has a sort of slightly odd air to it on the grounds of the Qingyan of that sort of a sort of quite traditional kind of um, way of thinking about um, uh, what, what that sort of scholarly youth is in, in the first place. Um, anyway, but to put the answer briefly, and you know, it would have to be nuanced further. Yes, I think there is something new about new being a good thing in this particular context. And it is a product, I think, broadly of that much longer modern historical moment that uh, is quite distinctive in the China of the, uh, of the 20th century in that, uh, uh, in that way. So yes, that, 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 that's an important point, Mark, and I thank you, thank you for that. Uh, and Jeff Wasserstrom has uh, the point about future or futuristic. Um, I think that, that's certainly true that there are an awful lot of ways in which things, things, the shape of things to come, if you might put it that way, and kind of futurism as uh, uh, an idea uh, can be seen as uh, complementary to the idea of newness in that particular uh, particular sense. I think though that new, I mean, again, it depends in the context in which you use it, but some of the things that I think um, have characterized newness in, uh, the 20th century, at least both in, in, in China and Japan, I think, have been much more about the redefinition of the here and now. So for instance, um, while I think the idea of new China in 1949, and also actually the new life movement, the Xinjiang Yindu back in the 1930s, of course, are about projection towards the future. They're also about renewal in the present, uh, the present moment. And also, if you think about a word which doesn't have the word new in it, but has the, the fu element, the fu xing of the, which is the, the, the renaissance, the rejuvenation uh, in the current uh, Xi Jinping new era project, it is actually also as much about going back to, uh, to retrieve something that's been lost in the past and restore it as it is about the, the future. So I think the future is a really valuable, important element to add. So thank you for that, Jeff. I certainly will be adding that in any future future iterations, but I don't see it as exactly coterminous with, with new as well. I think the two are still distinct. And the very last one I think came from, from Vivian, is that right? Uh, and it was about uh, fear. Sorry, to make the precise question again, uh, Ari, could you give me two seconds just to remind me what that, what that was? I think what Vivian uh, wants to ask has to do with the the uh, significance of fear uh, under these new yes. uh, foundations. Um, I think I can read out the question here. Do you agree with Professor Weston's suggestion that the declaration of a new era is somehow profoundly linked with fear? Uh, yeah, that's a question for me. It's it's it, 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 it's it's a really interesting uh, interesting thought. Um, I think for many people, and not just in China, not just in East Asia, the idea of things being new and changing is actually profoundly 
frightening one. And one of the reasons that revolution, a term which, as I mentioned, has been slightly put in the back cupboard, which perhaps there are ways in which we should bring it forward again, is not a comfortable concept for anyone very much. I mean, nobody sort of uh, thinks about, you know, I mean, revolution by definition is supposed to be about overturning that creates that sort of discomfort. And that is what makes things new, uh, uh, new again. I have to say that many of these elements, I mean, you know, new China, new new life, uh, new era. I don't think they're designed necessarily to be comforting elements. I think they are designed actually to suggest that there is an agenda. Uh, it is a collective agenda. It is one that's going to be happening, you know, whether you like it or not. So in, in that sense, I think it is meant to be both a stimulating concept. As I've said, a glamorous concept is a word that I've, I've, I've started using and I, I think has something to it. But the idea that it is a, a comfortable concept, one that casts out fear rather than engendering it, no, I don't think so. I think it is very much tied up with that. So that's, I think, a, a, a useful connection to, to have there as well. Could I have one very technical note as well? Because uh, I just see, because of time running out, lots of people have mentioned that there are, they'd like to know the references to some of the things I put forward, which I just said orally. I'm going to ask the organisers if afterwards we could put them up perhaps on the, the website for the lecture, and then people can click through to them there, because I think they're all available online. And rather than reading them out now, I can uh, arrange for them to be put there so that people can connect to them. Excellent. Thank you very much, Rana. Um, we are out of time. We have a lot of really good questions in the chat. Um, we won't be able to get to them today. Maybe you will be able to, with the help of our technological betters, uh, answer uh, some of them online, uh, because there are some really good ones in there that we don't have time to deal with. I just want to thank you uh, before turning over to Professor Yip. Uh, from my side, uh, for a wonderful lecture. It has been a huge privilege to be able to comment on this today. I can see the book taking shape now, Ron, in terms of how the, what is going to come out of this. Uh, and I really look forward to the, uh, to the next two, two lectures. Uh, it's, it's easier to listen in than having to provide comment, but it has been a true pleasure today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron. I really appreciated your excellent comments. And indeed, from all of the audience and others who have tuned in and have given comments, I really feel very privileged to have you all here. Thank you.